And welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on radio and podcast to the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. It's great to be here with you as always. One of the greatest issues that singers and scholars encounter when performing music from the distant past is intentionality. The context in which a piece of music is performed and the reason for its being performed have a profound impact on the way in which singers and audiences interact with the music. Take chant, for instance. In medieval times, when the genre was a staple of church services across Europe, chant served a purely devotional purpose. But in more recent decades, an alternate view of chant has evolved. While there are still plenty of people who use it as a form of prayer, there is now an entire movement dedicated to exploring chant as an aesthetic experience, one more or less divorced from religious intent. On tonight's show, which is brought to you from beautiful Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, we'll be looking at the dichotomy between these two conceptions of medieval chant. We'll also touch on what goes into creating a concert performance of chant music versus a church performance and the renaissance of interest in chant that's been happening since the 1990s. I'm here at the cathedral with Susan Hellauer, a founding member of the female a cappella quartet Anonymous Four. In addition to performing with Anonymous Four, one of the most renowned globe-trotting medieval music groups around today, Susan is also a scholar of medieval music. She teaches at Queen's College, New York, and runs regular chant workshops around the world. Hi, Susan. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here with you. I'd like to start by addressing the issue of the two different sides of the chant world. But before we get to that, let's have some music. Here's O Monialis Concio, a track from Anonymous 4's CD on the Harmonia Mundi label, Secret Voices. just joined us welcome this is voicebox and i'm chloe veltman voicebox podcasts can be downloaded for free from itunes or by visiting the voicebox website at voicebox-media.org i'm on location at grace cathedral in san francisco for this evening's show all about medieval chant with me is susan hallower a member of the female a cappella vocal ensemble anonymous four Susan, tell us about that spiralling piece of chant we just heard, O Monialis Concio, which comes from your newly released CD, Secret Voices. First of all, can you tell us where this chant comes from and what it's about, please? Yes, this is something called a planctus or uh, lament, a very common uh, kind of uh, occasion-written chant from the Middle Ages on the death of someone beloved. Uh, this exists in the uh, Codex Las Huelgas, which was collected around the year 1300 in north central Spain at the uh, convent of Las Huelgas in Burgos. 
And um, this manuscript is, was discovered in the very early 20th century by the monks of Silos, who later became famous uh, when their chant recordings were re-released in the 1990s. They were looking for chant, and they came upon this manuscript that contains monophonic music, chant, as well as um, monophonic song, rhythmic song, and uh, polyphony in two, three, and four voice parts. It's a fascinating manuscript, and one that we uh, delayed recording until this very late date because um, it's associated with the women of the convent and we didn't want to become typecast as singing women's music. Not that there's anything wrong with that, as they used to say on Seinfeld, but um, we didn't want to be pigeonholed that way back in the 80s. Now I think it's completely different. Uh, this planctus is actually, when you look at it on paper, written in something called uh, mensural notation. So it looks like they're longs and shorts, and many groups have recorded it that way. But I had a different idea about that kind of notation when used in monophonic music this way, and felt that this piece really is um, just a rolling, um, beautiful, sinuous piece of free chant, chant in free rhythm. So um, can you just explain to us a little bit what this idea of free chant is in, in more detail. What is free chant? Well, uh, that's just a, a word I used. What I'm really talking about is uh, music in free rhythm or no rhythm. The, the manuscript, the theoretical manuscripts from around the time of this manuscript, one of which is, believe it or not, called Anonymous Four, mm. who was a, a theorist uh, labeled anonymous much later in the 19th century, Anonymous Number Four, um, talks a lot, and other theorists at the same time talk a lot about music that is measured and music that is beyond measure, per ultra mensuram. And music beyond measure would be chant, where the longs and shorts are not strictly measurable as they would be in dance music, for instance, or in notated multi-voice polyphony, discant polyphony. So um, looking at this piece, particular piece of music, it looks like it's measured, but really um, it seems when you deal with the actual waves of music in it that it is per ultramensurum, beyond measure, and therefore free, directed overall by the flow of the text. Do other groups generally perform it in your style, or have you really broken away from previous performances with this much more fluid, freer rendering? I don't know every performance of it, but I have heard performances that are measured using longs and shorts. When I'm preparing a program, I try not to survey or listen to anything else that's been done. I mean, I may have heard stuff in the past, but I, I, I sort of cut myself off from anybody else's performance. I, I'm sure everybody does that. You don't want to be influenced by what other people have, how other people have interpreted it. Uh, however, there are several pieces in this manuscript that are in the same situation. The, the, they're single line, and you have to decide whether the piece is um, measured, rhythmic, that is metrical, or beyond measure, that is free and directed by the text. And sometimes it's not so easy to tell, but the text will of, often give you a cue. So Anonymous Four have been singing together for many years. What, what year were you founded? 1986. Okay, 1986. Now, obviously, uh, all these years of singing together ha have has given you this beautiful consistency of tone. But can you explain to us, beyond the sheer amount of practice that you've had together and synergy you have together as singers, can you tell us a little bit more about how you go about achieving this beautiful consistency of tone and purity of tone? 
Well, su uh, surprisingly to some, perhaps, um, our vo actual individual voices are very, very different from each other. You would never mistake one of us for the other if you heard us singing alone, which we often do in performance. You'll, we, we give ourselves opportunities to be heard alone, and the blend that we get is, uh, well, we do some work on vowel consistency, make sure we're staying our vowel sounds the same. However, I would say that's maybe about 10% of it. 90% of it is coming to an agreement about the shape of the line, the destination of a musical line, um, the, uh, the weight of not only the syllables themselves, but in the word and then in the phrase. So this, this rhetorical structure that we build and must agree on, not always right away. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a little work to agree, and we try different things, but that, that intention the unity of intent that we achieve really does most of the work for that. We don't want to sound, um, you know, like like we all are the same. I mean, you could get that made by a machine. We really need the colors of our voice to be voices to be contributing. But the unity of intent unity of intent is what creates the blend. This is Voice Box with Chloe Veltman. tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can download our free weekly podcasts on iTunes. Search for KALW Voicebox. I'm chatting with Susan Hellauer, a medieval music scholar and a founding member of Anonymous Four, a women's vocal quartet that specializes in performing medieval repertoire. We just heard a snippet from near the start of Ordo Vatutum, a chant-infused sacred drama by the iconic 12th century German composer, writer, philosopher, Christian mystic and all-over wonder woman Hildegard von Bingen. The performance was given by Sequentia, a medieval music ensemble that was founded by Benjamin Bagby and Barbara Thornton in Basel in 1977 and is currently based in Paris. Susan, groups like Sequentia and Anonymous Four are part of what we might call the art chant movement. That is, these groups conceive of chant as an aesthetic experience aimed primarily at concert hall audiences as opposed to singing chant in a church as an act of religious devotion. When and why did this movement come about and how has it developed over the decades? Well, I think you have to look uh, right back to the Solemn movement of the 19th century. Uh, chant had fallen into uh, various stages of disrepair uh, throughout the centuries. It really, um, chant composition was on a very high level and, and revered and valued as much as polyphony up into the 14th century. After the 14th century, it started to uh, decay a little bit in terms of just the upkeep, I would say. It was mostly in monastic institutions where chant was kept up, whereas the big diocesan institutions like cathedrals that had professional um, clerical singers would have been concentrating more and more on polyphony, although chant was sung there. But it was not there. Um, 
They didn't have the aim of daily prayer the way monastics would have. So it makes sense that in the mid 19th century, uh, going along with what uh, is, was called in Germany the Cecilia movement, of which Anton Bruckner was a leading light, uh, to renovate and renew Catholic church music, both polyphony and, very importantly, the chant. And the monks of the Salem Abbey, the Benedictines in, um, in France, actually made a project to go unearth the manuscripts in which the oldest chants were kept, rather than try to gather what this, these people are doing here and those people are doing there. Let's go back to the source. So we have uh, great reverence for them and what they did. And they their attitude toward chant shifted during the years of their renewal. Right around the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, the Vatican started to release their, uh, the fruit of their labors, the uh, gathering of uh, chant edited and created for the use of the modern Catholic Church. Through the years, if you look at the very early books, you won't see any uh, kind of rhythmic markings at all. It's basically just square notes on four-line staves with C-clefs. As you get into the early 20th century, you start to see long and short marks, ictus or um, emphasis marks, dots, and you start to get a lot more to help keep groups of large non-musicians together. There's a whole story behind why this happened and their are names and dates and places and, and fighting theories that fight with each other, but essentially it started to become much more heavily edited for modern use. Um, but the interest in chant that was revived in this way uh, what became a liturgical phenomenon, but it also became an art phenomenon. All this beautiful music and the, and the Salem monks, to their great credit, published facsimiles of the originals. They didn't just say, okay, here's the books, we did the work, we're not gonna show all work. We're just gonna keep these manuscripts here in our little library and this is what you should sing. They actually published many, many manuscripts in facsimile. And so music, musicians and musicologists had access to the originals, not just the Catholic church music. This is, I think people forget how, that this happened and how important it was. And at that point, this wealth of beautiful music, not only music that's liturgically appropriate now, but sequences and other music that's, that was stricken out by the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Um, this music is now available. And, and artists, musicians as artists, started to look at it as art. And that's really early 20th century. And then it really took off from there. So um, apart from this dichotomy of people doing using the chant for worship versus using it to hear in a concert hall setting, what are the other main differences between art chant and church chant or devotional chant? Well, it's, it's strictly context, and it... Um, goes right up to today. Uh, the, one of the things I just said, where there's a much chant available from the original manuscripts that's no longer liturgically appropriate. Interestingly enough, medieval music groups that usually combine chant and polyphony look very much at those non-liturgical chants, the, the wealth, the treasure, because those um, things like sequences, things like tropes, um, liturgical drama, of which we just heard some, these uh, were where really in, from the Frankish era onward, from about the year 800 onward in North Central Europe, these new liturgical additions that didn't stay with us were where the art was pushed forward. They were the real creative cauldron of the middle European um, musician poets. This, these were the forms and the genres that they concentrated on. And now, because of the work of the Salem monks, 
they're available again. And so art groups tend to concentrate on those kinds of pieces, those creative pieces. They're more dramatic, they're more poetic. Um, the liturgical music is beautiful too, don't get me wrong, but there's all this other, these other genres that um, uh, they really show the creative fire of the Frankish musicians and afterward. And Sequencia spends a lot of time uh, and effort on that music as well. So what's your mission as a, a scholar and a performer of this repertoire? I think from the very beginning, uh, when we first got together just to read some music, uh, it was very uh, clear to all of us. We, you know, we're from New York. We started in New York and all sang in other kinds of Renaissance and early music groups. And it was really clear to all of us uh, that the monophonic music chant mainly was usually pushed to the background and as the kind of, well, let's get through the chant in this alternatum setting so we can get to the good stuff, so we can get to the polyphony. And you know, we, we sang with many groups that would do long concerts of nothing but very beautiful polyphony. And I knew, not that I'm the only one who knew, but it was really uh, apparent to me that the, the, the power and the magnificence and the, the difference in the polyphony is lost if there's no context, if you don't have the plain song context around it. Um, in a liturgical service in the Middle Ages, it would have been even on a very high solemn feast, I don't know the exact proportion, but probably about 75% chant, say in the Middle Ages, at a big um, diocesan institution like Notre Dame, 75% chant, maybe 25, probably more like 20 or 15% polyphony. But when that polyphony rises out of that plain of plain song, that, that, that landscape, and suddenly there's this thrust upward, this cathedral of music, sound happening, it would just knock you, knock you flat with am amazement. And then when that was done, back to that, that you know, calm sea of plain song. And that undulation, that rhythm of texture is really essential to understanding polyphony. And the texture change also makes chant you know, more apparent. And there are, there are writings, there's a huge 13th century poem called The Owl and the Nightingale in which the, uh, um, the, uh, the owl and the nightingale argue with each other. It's an argument over, is the owl the superior bird? That's the chant. Or the nightingale, the new complex way of singing. And so these, this dichotomy, this, this tension was actually very apparent even back in that time. Susan, can you tell us about some of the other ensembles besides your own um, at the art end of the chant, chant spectrum these days? Who's doing really exciting, interesting work? Well, we have uh, Sequencia and Dialogos often working together, uh, but working separately as, as well, um, looking at um, the chant from right around the year 800, looking at Eastern European chant, sort of the edges of um, you know, the center, off from the center of uh, chant cultivation, either very early or, or not quite in the center of Europe. Um, and they're doing a wonderful thematic programming. I love thematic programming. It's really uh, what the art groups concentrate on. We're not worshiping, but we're trying to contextualize uh, what we're present, the beauties that we're trying to present to you. And then um, we have uh, Capella Romana, which is, uh, concentrates on Byzantine music. They do a wide spectrum of music, uh, contemporary polyphony, 
old polyphony as well as quite a bit of Byzantine chant. And um, they have a great sound, a strong uh, sound that's also very uh, seductive. I think it, they really they really hit the nail on the head. I love them. Um, you have Ensemble Organum and Marcel Perez. Um, they've done a lot of experimenting with the old Roman chant sources. Uh, these are um, the sources of chant um, that uh, remain uh, the same and not altered by the trip north to the kingdom of Charlemagne. So what uh, essentially what was brought north in around the year 800 to help unify all of the Holy Roman Empire. You know, you'd lost the Roman Empire in its language, its civics, its culture, its art. That's gone, but now the Holy Roman Empire is going to unify its kingdom with liturgy and music that goes with it. Uh, it was a very big political moment. And, and yet there are sources of the old Roman chant that uh, didn't get carried north, and uh, Marcel Perez especially has concentrated on that. And you can hear that little Eastern tinge in it, that Mediterranean uh, improvisatory ornamental uh, style. And um, I also really like um, Sir Marie Kirouz uh, concentrates on Lebanese and Middle Eastern Christian chant, Maronite chant. Uh, she is a religious person. She is uh, on the cusp, really, of the art and the worship. So she, she really straddles those two um, areas. She's been around for a long time and has a unique sound and repertoire. Let's take a listen to some recordings by uh, these groups which you've been talking about, Susan, um, just to give us an indication of the great diversity of the scene today. Um, we're going to hear first of all from Dialogos and then from uh, the Chant Wars album, which is created by Dialogos in collaboration with Sequencia. Then we move to Sir Marie Carouse and L'Ensemble de la Paix. Then fourth on the playlist, we'll hear Capella Romana. And finally, we go to Marcel Perez and Ensemble Organum. And if you'd like more detailed information about the playlist, please visit the Voicebox website.
listening to Voice Box with Chloe Veltman. This evening we're exploring the world of medieval chant with Susan Hellauer of Anonymous Four, a women's a cappella vocal ensemble specialising in this repertoire. We just heard a wide range of tracks by some of the most interesting medieval music ensembles around who've taken chant beyond being a religious experience to one that is primarily aesthetic. The groups featured on the set included Dialogos, Sequencia, Sel Marie Caruse and Ensemble de la Paix, Capella Romana and Ensemble Organum. Please visit the Voicebox website for more detailed playlist information. So let's talk a little bit more deeply about the intention behind performances of this repertoire by groups that are not religious, Susan. To what extent is having a religious background important for performing this music authentically, even if the ensemble isn't focused on using the music as a form of prayer? Well, it can actually, it can help because you get a good... Um someone with a, a background in chant, you know, from their own religious childhood and background, uh, you know what there is out there. So uh, you, you actually bring with you a broad survey of the repertoire, at least as it's handed forward by the Salem uh, researchers uh, who put out the uh, Liber Usualis and all the other chant books. But it can also hinder you because if you were used to hearing chants sung, in the solemn manner as it as it grew during the 20th throughout the 20th century then you might uh, have a little trouble singing in a more rhetorical way a, a way that's more connected with the flow and content and, and intent of the words themselves so it really can go both ways it, it's really good to have some background to know where to go get the music and also um, it's good to have a musicological background or know a musicologist's email address, because you need to know what those sources are that are not contained or handed forward by the Salem monks. When Anonymous Four sings chant, as I'm sure every other group that you just heard here uh, sings chant, we're not singing from the service books of the Salem monks. We're going back to the actual chant manuscripts. Uh, one of our earliest ideas with Anonymous Four was if we're going to do a, a program, say like English Lady Mass, of um, English polyphony of the 13th and early 14th century, the chant that we're going to put in there to create the context that I was talking about earlier is going to be from 13th or 14th century English chant manuscripts of the serum use. And so, and those are available. I don't have to go to England, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I did, but uh, good facsimiles are available in, in good music libraries. So we're, we're using the chant as it would have been at that time. And we're using the text to guide us in the production of the, of the lines. So, um, Susan, you told me that when you were in Spain touring a while back, um, the audience members thought you were nuns. Can you tell uh, tell me a little bit about that? Well, how, you're obviously not nuns. Are you even religious? Well, the group is uh, has no common religious background. We, we're everything, uh, but uh, we don't, and we're not. A, we don't sing in a worship sense at all. But this person, uh, I remember the look on her face. She was absolutely incredulous that people who were not singing for a religious reason would bother singing religious music. And that's where that real dichotomy, the real watershed comes because, because we're artists, we need to, whatever music we've selected to sing, and uh, whether it's chant or polyphony, we, we and all these other wonderful groups that you're playing today need to sing them with complete conviction, with complete communication of what the text is saying. Uh, and that's, you know, it's like acting. You really need to assume that role completely. So 
We, uh, we're looking at the text as a text of poetry and not as a religious text at all. However, people who hear us who are not accustomed to art groups doing music said they sometimes just absolutely cannot believe it. But you know what got written down in large part in the Middle Ages was sacred music because who had the corner on reading and writing at that time? And it was the clerics. So we have a wealth of music from that time that we're communicating. I thought it might be interesting to hear two contrasting performances of the same chant. The first by a secular ensemble, in this case Anonymous Four, and then the second by a sacred choir, the monks of Santo Domingo de Silos. Let's listen now to the two groups' radically different takes on the chant Ave Maris Stella. tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes. Look for the show under the search term KALW Voicebox. We just heard two quite different versions of the chant Ave Maris Stella. The first was performed by Anonymous Four and the second by the monks of Santo Domingo de Silos. Susan, can you talk us through the contrasting approaches that we just heard, please? Yes, so the monks of Silos are singing the standard solemn uh, version of the hymn, uh, the Vespers hymn, Ave Maristella. And uh, we are singing a version from uh, an antiphoner from 13th century England. Uh, when we sing chant, as I, I mentioned earlier, we look for the uh, manuscript that corresponds with the time and place that we're recreating and making a context for. So the notes are actually different, though you'll hear easily that it's the same song. This is very similar to, say, um, folk music, where two fiddle or banjo players will be playing the same song, but they're, they're, you know they're the same song, but there's a lot of minor differences. Chant is oral tradition, and no two manuscripts will contain the same tune of Ave Maristella. Also, you'll hear the Silos monks uh, with organ accompaniment, and we will not, we'll sometimes add a drone, but uh, not chord changes. This the kind of chord changes below uh, Gregorian chant from the 20th century is pretty common. It's used in a lot of churches to support congregational or choral singing. Um, and you can even find books that will tell you what chords to use under certain chants. And also, you'll hear that the monks of Silos are using a kind of equalist rhythm, where basically one note gets one kind of beat. And whereas what we're doing is 
using the words as our anchor and the, the notes speed up and there's a kind of a rubato of speeding up and slowing down, the push and a pull that we're using to emphasize the, the direction of the phrases themselves. Do you ever get accused of taking too many liberties with the sacred religious texts and melodies that you perform, perhaps by custodians of the religious side of the chant world? No, we actually haven't. Uh, I haven't myself heard it. We've been criticized for singing men's music. There are reviewers uh, from our very first CD release who, who just went ballistic over the fact that we're, you know, distorting the repertoire by singing music that's supposed to be sung by men. However, chant was sung in monastic institutions by men or women, and um, the Las Huelgas and other repertoires as well in Poland and in other places were found located at convents. So we know that at least some of the polyphonic repertoire would have, if not all of it, would have been sung by female voices. So uh, we get a little of that, but um, you know, occasionally groups like Anonymous 4 or Sequencia or Dialogos will add drones, will sometimes vocal drones or sometimes instrumental drones. We see pictures of um, illustrations of instruments in manuscripts of chant and song and polyphony from the Middle Ages. We don't know exactly what that means and how they were used in church, but, you know, sometimes we'll do that. Um, but I think that our listeners really, they know that we're not worshiping, we're presenting an art context rather than a religious context. Um, sometimes, though, you, you go as far as to change words in the text if necessary. Um, what's your justification for doing that? Can you tell us about, a bit more about what you, those examples? Yes, occasionally, uh, and not, not even only occasionally, but quite a bit, you come across anti-Semitic references in medieval chant. It's not uncommon at all, both in medieval chant and polyphony and medieval monophonic song, as distinct from a liturgical chant. And um, what we'll do, a number of things, we'll either leave out the verses of the piece um, that have anti-Semitic references. You know, part of, part, of, part of us is Jewish, so, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. And we, I think even if we weren't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. Now, other groups make different decisions. Um, I will change words and sometimes just substitute a new word, but I'll always say so or leave out a verse, and I'll always say so in the, in the liner notes or in the text and translations. Um, that's our choice. Other groups make choices, uh, would say that that's, that's distorting the repertoire. You have to present it the way it was. And if there's a good reason, it's an educational moment. It's an educational opportunity. And we, we see these in art, uh, with murals sometimes that are old and depict slavery. You know, there's, there's some place out west that had a big to-do about that, and they should have a big to-do about that. It's a moment, it's a teachable moment. And we made our choice. I was struck by something you said the other day when we spoke on the phone about how Anonymous 4's aesthetic devotion can be challenging to some people. So even though you're not being moved as you sing in a religious way necessarily, to what extent do you see what you're doing as an act of devotion? Is there some kind of spiritual plane that you enter when you're singing this repertoire? Certain pieces take you there, you know, regardless of... Uh what your religious or spiritual status might be. There are definitely pieces that, um, I think in the Catholic Church, they refer to it as the communion of saints, uh, meaning that it's not just us standing here doing this liturgical event, whatever it is, but we're standing shoulder to shoulder with people from the beginning of Christianity and all the way through. And musically, we, we, we hear it, we feel it, I think, 
quite often as a communion of music. So we're singing music from a long time ago and we feel ourselves shoulder to shoulder with the people who originally created it. And for instance, there are, like the Planctus that you opened the program with, there are a lot of pieces that deal with extremely sad um, and moving events, um, like Mary at the Foot of the Cross, which is the subject of one of our CD's uh, programs, uh, The Lily and the Lamb. And you know, you don't have to be Christian to understand Mary's pain and anguish. And the music that um, these English composers in that collection used to convey that, and the, and the poetry as well, in English and in Latin, uh, you know, it's common human experience, the experience of loss and grief. And it was no task at all to go there with that music. I'd like to listen now, actually, to one of the pieces from The Lily and the Lamb that you mentioned, um, the Starbat Iuxta Christi Crucem, which is extremely emotionally intense. Um, it's telling about Mary watching her son dying on the cross. Um, how do you convey the emotional intensity of a piece like this without necessarily having to tap into your religious roots? Well, first, it has to be good poetry and a good piece of music. I mean, without that, at the bottom of it, it's just, it doesn't matter what we do. And this is a very good piece and very good poetry and music. And there's, an, there are, there's a musical and a poetic arc to the piece itself. It really tells us what to do. We follow the arc of the poetry and we follow the arc of the music as we build the intensity. And uh, you can't give away the shop all at once. You really have to see where the high point is and build to that and then come back. So it, uh, as long as the material is of that quality, it's really um, our task then to just put ourselves into that material and go with it. tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. We're on location at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco for a conversation about medieval chant with music scholar and vocalist Susan Hellauer. We just heard Susan's group, Anonymous Four, perform the powerful Stabat Iuxta Christi Crucem, a sequence from a three-section work entitled The Lily and the Lamb. The track comes from Anonymous Four's Four Centuries of Chant album. Susan, what can you tell us of the secular music of the medieval period? Why were so few secular works written down compared to the sacred side of things? Yes, secular um, music really didn't, I mean, there was, a, there was a lively commerce in it. I mean, there was um, secular entertainment everywhere, but the instrumental musicians for the most part and singers who were these entertainers like jongleurs and minstrels would have been musically illiterate. And it's only by absolute chance and luck that we even have some of their dance pieces written down. Probably the queens said, oh, you know, the minstrel so-and-so is here this winter. We're, we're keeping him here because he's so great. And I, when we kick him out in the spring or whenever it is, I want to make sure that I have that dance piece. So some clerical scribe probably got it down. Um, the, the 
the players themselves would not have written this down. Um, again, the, the clerics had the corner on the market of writing, and so it's the sacred music that, for the most part, got written down. The huge repertoire of the troubadours and trouvères was written down, but we have vastly more poems than we do melodies for, for these. It was considered poetry, just the way Homer's great works in ancient Greece were probably chanted, or um, some sort of incantational uh, performance on some sort of musical formula was used. And it's the same with that. So we have very few melodies written down. Not until the 14th century, really, do we start to get a number of purely secular songs. Now, the, the one exception to this is the fantastic repertoire of French motets from the 13th century on chant tenors. These were probably written by the clerical musicians at the great secular institutions like cathedrals in France. And they have love songs in their upper voices and a, a domino or some other piece of chant of supporting them in the tenor. So that, that's kind of a, they're kind of mongrel pieces that are not purely sacred or secular. But uh, they did get written down because they were probably written by people who could read and write music. Well, I know it's a little bit deviating off our, our theme of, of chant, sacred chant in particular, but I, I went delving around in uh, the Wikipedia archives and I managed to dig up a little uh, secular uh, piece from the 12th century. Um, it's an Occitan language song. That's a language that used to be spoken in the southern part of what is now called France. And the song, which is called something that's quite hard to pronounce, I think it's A Cantar Mer de Soqueu Novolia, or something like that, was composed by uh, somebody called Comtesse de Dia. It is the only surviving music by a woman troubadour, according to Wikipedia. This is Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. If you miss an episode of Voicebox on the airwaves, don't worry. Download our free weekly podcasts on iTunes or on the Voicebox website. Scholar and singer Susan Hellauer is with me for a discussion about medieval chant. We're at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. We just heard a rare example of a secular song of the 12th century by a lady troubadour, Comtesse de Dia. The song is titled A Cantar Mer de Soqueu Novolria, or something like that. It's an Occitan language song, and that's a language that used to be spoken in the southern part of what we now call France. Susan, what can sacred music practitioners today learn from studying the secular music of the medieval period, albeit that much of it hasn't survived? Well, there's uh, actually, uh, in the melodies of the troubadours, of which um, the Comtesse de Dia was one, referred to the female troubadours as trobarites, um, there was a lot of scholarship early in the 20th century looking for correspondences between liturgical chant and the melodies of the troubadours. Um, nothing really conclusive um, was ever uh, decided, as far as I know. I think that, you know, as in so many things, there's a missing link. You think you have everything. You, by ass assuming that you have all the evidence that you need to solve the problem is the mistake, because there are things missing. There's the whole 
uh, there's a whole world of popular, not written down music that could be influencing. There's Arabic music in Spain, right next door to the uh, Provence, to, to the places of the Occitan language. So um, the, really uh, what you, you listen for, the use of the church modes in some of these. Uh, but for the most part, what I take from the secular songs is the fact that song and passion go together. And I don't really think, I can't really think that because you're singing sacred music, you have to subtract the passion. I think it's just as passionate, uh, just as intense as anything secular. And as you get into the 13th century, you start to find a very uh, strong cross-pollination between the music of the troubadours and trouvères, that romantic love, uh, both ideas, verbal ideas, literary ideas, and musical gesture, and sacred music that is of a more popular bent. You have the Franciscans coming up then, and they adopted secular tunes just you know wholesale to help entice and lure their followers to worship in a, in a joyful and intense and uh, uh, personal way, very intensely personal way, rather than that, that observation of distant, concentrated chant and polyphony. So let's turn our attention back now to the world of, of sacred music. What do you think, Susan, of the pop music and video game world's appropriation of chant? in more recent times. Yeah, there's, I mean, people say, oh, how could they do that? Uh, but you know, I've learned in my many years that you can't fight City Hall. Whatever popular culture decides to do, there's no use complaining or arguing about it. It just does what it does. You need to look and observe and, and follow, really. Follow the idea. Um, you know, the better the music is, the more it can stand um, being dressed in all sorts of clothing, you know, of every kind and party hats and this and that. And um, I have nothing to say. I mean, popular culture goes the way it goes. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like me trying to stop a tsunami. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. This is Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is also available as a free weekly podcast. Listen to your favorite shows from the Voicebox series anytime, anywhere by searching for KALW Voicebox on iTunes. On tonight's show, all about Gregorian chant, I'm chatting with Susan Hellauer, a founding member of the female a cappella vocal quartet, Anonymous Four. We just heard a pop version of a Gregorian chant by the 80s ambience music band Enigma. This track in part was responsible for the revival of interest in medieval music in the late 20th century, or at least its mass appeal. Susan, how does the resurgence and in interest in medieval chant in the secular world parallel what's been going on in the church in recent decades regarding how chant is perceived and sung? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, there's the whole New Age side of chant, which crosses cultural boundaries. I mean, there are people 
who are fans of chant in many cultures, Buddhist, Hindu, um, the Tuvan voice singers, you know, this, it's, a, it's a new age phenomenon and um, really going back to very um, basic spiritual expression uh, and crossing cultural boundaries. And the thing that, the thing that music does, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm pontificating here, but music actually in our own experience takes you one remove away from dogma. So words that you might not be very comfortable saying if you're not particularly religious in, in the Christian or some other tradition, add the music and you go up a flight from the dogma. You, you, you sort of float above it a little bit. And that music en enables people to enjoy or benefit from, uh, participate in the universality rather than just the, the little shreds of dogma. And so the New Age uh, world spirituality people, you know, can we, we can be part of that. We don't have to consciously do it, but we'll be taken in there. And, you know, people who are uh, doing anything from massages to meditation very often call on chant with its spareness, with its otherworldly um, atmosphere. Uh, the Catholic Church itself, I don't know, I mean, I'm not in, tune, in touch with them <laughs> directly, but I do know that since the um, changes of Vatican II, 1968, 69, 70, were instituted where a very plain everyday language was used in the vernacular, was used for the um, liturgical services, they really, they say now they've really been contemplating ever since then a real uh, translation of the scripture and a reinstitution of some, at least some, Gregorian chant uh, from the Salem books. And that's actually right now in the fall of 2011, in Advent season, uh, the church musicians, Catholic church musicians are beginning to introduce their congregations to this new language that is closer to the biblical language, a little less every day. And uh, many chants are now being introduced and taught to choirs and to congregations in either English or Latin. And so um, these materials are being distributed now and being taught. And so it's, it's seen by some in the church, I'm, I get this now from talking to church musicians, as a step back and others as a gigantic step forward into recreating the mystery and the, the specialness of liturgical music and language. Here's an example of a, a new missile chant. I found the clip, a Kyrie by Jacob Banks, recorded in English by the St. John Berkman's Parish Choir with Judith Trosen on organ in the Church Music Association of America's online archive. heard a short clip from a new setting of the Mass by Jacob Banks. The Kyrie from Banks's Mass of the Most Sacred Heart was performed by St. John Berkman's Parish Choir with Judith Trozen on organ. Well, that's all we have time for on Voicebox this week. Thanks so much, Susan, for being here with me at Grace Cathedral and sharing your insights into the world of chant. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
To find out more about Anonymous 4, please visit the group's website at anonymous4.com. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Grace Cathedral for hosting us. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KLW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org and visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. We love to know what you think of us. Friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. Call us please also with your comments and questions. The number is 415-841-4121 extension 3515. That's 415-841-4121 extension 3515. We've been talking about how polyphony should be the big payoff, the thing that sends us soaring after we've spent time absorbing the more introverted world of chant in a concert setting. Well, that moment has come. I'll play us out with a colourful Kyrie from the Messe de Notre Dame by the 14th century French poet and composer Guillaume de Machaut. Have a songful week. Yeah.